Welcome to Teaching Thursdays, an edition of the Better Bible Reading Podcast featuring sermons and selected teaching series from Kevin Morris. Speaking of selected teaching series, we are continuing our teaching series through the book of 1 Peter. We've been going verse by verse through this book. We're in chapter 2. We left off in verse 17. So I want to jump right into it this week, verse number 18 through the end of chapter 2, which is verse 25. Here's what it says. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins, in his body on the tree, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So a beautiful end to chapter 2. And Peter wants to leave no stone unturned here in terms of the wide range of application that he sees in this idea of being subject to authority. So we looked at it in the positive sense last week. We looked at it in the, as what I called it, the ethical imperative, the Christianity in the public square, Christianity in lawmaking. Uh, For those of you who are theologically astute, I'm not talking about theonomy here. I'm talking about the simple fact that Christianity should make a difference in how we tackle any issue and how we respond to any culture to which we live. That's the name of the game. But now in more of the negative sense. that The positive sense was what we should do. The negative sense is not what we should not do, but rather what we should endure. And to explain this, Peter speaks specifically to servants. Now, it is possible that what Peter has in mind here is simply to address Christians as servants the same way that he addresses Christians uh, previously as exiles. But I think it's more important here and, and more likely that Peter really does have the um, idea of people who are servants. Um, not just Christians who are citizens of a particular country and practicing their uh, submission to authority, but actual servants. Uh, The reason for this is not only because it makes the most sense contextually, uh, but because Peter builds a theological motif on something that is literally true. He's already done this with the idea of exiles. He builds a theological motif on the idea of being an exile, But he does so in the context of speaking to literal exiles, geographically exiles, culturally exiles. And now he does, wants to use the same uh, principle 
in speaking to those who are literally servants. And he does so uh, by covering both aspects of servanthood. A servant who finds themselves with a very reputable, very reasonable master, and servants who find themselves with masters who are quite uh, unreasonable. Servants be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust, for this is a gracious thing. So the task at hand is this. We're called to submit both to unjust authorities and unjust circumstances. Well, this is understandable, hopefully, if it is the result of sinful conduct on our part. But it is a difficult task to uphold when it is in response to obeying what Peter has previously said, when we do good, and what he says here. Peter says that this is an amazing thing, a gracious thing in the sight of God when we respond positively to suffering even as we do good. We are, we're honest, quick to cry justice, quick to demand justice. When we suffer at the hands of ungodly men and evil circumstances of life, especially when based on our own insight of our track record, we've been living upright lives in the sight of God. We often cry to God, supposing that He has been treating us unfairly all of a sudden. Or we live in guilt, supposing that perhaps whatever sorrow it is that we're experiencing is because of some particular sin that we might have overlooked. But these are unhelpful habits for us to take up. And Peter knows this about us. And because of that, he qualifies his statement in a way so as to shut our mouths from having any grounds to respond in this way. And he does so by citing the chief true example of suffering, and that is Christ himself. When we examine such an office of servanthood that we see Jesus demonstrate, Nobody has ever been a better servant than him. Nobody has ever been a better servant to the Father than the Son of God himself. Nobody has ever been a better servant to the world than the Son of God himself. And we could also say nobody has ever suffered and endured unjustly to the level that Jesus himself has. So Jesus is the better servant He's also the better sufferer. Jesus has served in ways, and so I could probably say it in a better way. Jesus is quantitatively and qualitatively a perfect servant. He's also quantitatively and qualitatively a perfect sufferer. We are imperfect at those things, both by quantity and in quality. This, Peter says, we are called to. That is a fascinating reality. This standard of perfection, this standard of God saying previously, be holy even as I am holy, applies to servanthood and to suffering because Jesus Christ is our example. The divine Son of God is our example of servanthood and suffering. We are called Not only to suffering in the broad sense, just the fact of living in a post-Genesis 3 world, 
but we're called to unjust suffering. Suffering that has not been attained by us because of something bad we have done. Suffering that seems to come out of left field. That seems to come out of nowhere. Suffering that might be in response to a wonderful week of holiness that we have enjoyed. But that's just really something that we have to grapple with. Because we're not used to that. It seems foreign. And in some ways it is. But consider how foreign it was to Christ himself. Who has never sinned who was in a state of exaltation at the right hand of the Father in all eternity, and enters into human history, takes a humble position of servanthood in this world, and is met with suffering, which suffering of any kind for Jesus is unjust. But every level of suffering, unjustly, and he endures it. We're beckoned to follow him in that position. His Example of this is, of course, found in the way that he acted in the entire account given to us in the Gospels. And this was the outworking of the prophecy given to us in the Old Testament in Isaiah 53 about the suffering servant. And Peter tells us specifically that the way we are to follow Jesus in this is not by taking the weight of our sin upon us and suffering for it, but living in the innocence of Christ and following him in the absence of sin reviling threats and everything related. Further, we're to mimic this that we see in Jesus, which Peter says that Jesus continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So Jesus shows us here perfect obedience to God and perfect submission to ungodly authorities and did not sacrifice or give up his obedience to the Father when he was met with all these sufferings. Our example should be the same. So long as we do not sin, we have remained obedient to the Father, and so long as we do not sin, we can submit ourselves to the governing authorities. Our obedience to the Father, just like Jesus' obedience to the Father, may and will, if I might add, result in suffering in this world. But to this, we are called to follow him. And the greatest moment of unjust suffering was the greatest moment of grace poured out by God, the bearing of our sins by Jesus Christ. Now, this is why we are to suffer unjustly, because it is gracious in God's sight. Or to put it another way, it is where God is pleased to be gracious and pour out his power upon us. Jesus did this so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. We've been healed by his wounds, and so long as we follow him in that, we may be sanctified by the wounds we take on in this life as we follow him. In that last verse, verse 25, For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Peter refers to us as returning sheep, returning to our shepherd and overseer. This is really a great comfort for all of us because in regards to our suffering, we may know with joy that God is our shepherd and overseer. The sheep 
may not know or understand why the shepherd leads us in a particular direction, but the shepherd knows better than the sheep. And we know that our shepherd is a good shepherd, one who is leading us to still waters and green pastures, Psalm 23. Even at that, the one who promises to lead us to abundant life, John 10. Therefore, we, all of us, must take heart that every step along the way is necessary to that end. Because Christ, our good shepherd, has found it necessary for us to endure this or that trial, we must see them, so long as we do indeed endure, as outworkings of God's grace, not contradictory to God's grace or antithetical to God's grace, but they are places to where God especially outpours His grace. This is really the essence of Christian submission. And Christ has given us the perfect example, the example of enduring and the example of how God dealt in a gracious way with such things. So really our encouragement is to follow Christ, to continue to entrust our souls to Him, and know that the one we are entrusting our souls to is the one who judges justly. This really is the foundation of being able to live and reconcile the grace to which we experience, the love of God to which we have as our own, in the context of the old heavens and earth. Oftentimes, when people are saved, they expect that all the blessings that we read about in the book of Revelation, all of the consummation of the old with the new, people expect, well, if this is true for those who are in Christ, it must be true for me now. It must be the present reality to which I am supposed to be experiencing. And if I haven't gotten there yet, it must be because some kind of sin or suffering sure does seem antithetical to all that. So I, maybe what I'm supposed to be doing is avoid suffering at all costs. And this world sure does seem to be structured in an evil way. It sure does seem to look a lot like Sodom and Gomorrah. So maybe I should run to the mountains just like Lot and his daughters did. But that is to miss the point. The point is understanding that Jesus has called us to follow him. Jesus has promised to be with us forever. He has given us his Holy Spirit to dwell with us day in and day out. And he calls us to look for what will be our future inheritance. He calls us to glory at the future reality that we will be able to experience each and every day in a new heavens and new earth. We're supposed to be excited about that. We're supposed to long for that. But Peter says, way back at the beginning of this letter, that the reason God goes to such great lengths to communicate to us this future inheritance that is ours isn't so we don't lose heart or lose sight of the present life to which God calls us to. We could say it this way, since Jesus is our example, the same way that it's mentioned in other places in the New Testament. 
that Jesus not only calls us to follow him in his exaltation, in his glory, but he calls us to follow him in his humiliation or servanthood. We are not only looking forward to walking the path of the resurrected Christ who has defeated death, but we are to remember that that same Christ is the one who was scorned and despised by this world, but continued as a witness of the Father to this world. Now, we're not called to be little Christ. We're not called to be little gods. We're not called to try to um, reinvent the wheel here or to try to mimic every miracle that Jesus did. But instead, we're called to follow in his footsteps. And the footsteps include suffering. And since the footsteps include suffering of a perfect man, that means we should never look at suffering and say, maybe it was because of the sin that I committed. But neither should we look at suffering and say, I know I haven't been doing anything wrong, so this must be avoided at all costs. You never want to go knocking on the door of suffering just for suffering's sake. We don't want to have a asceticism mindset of Christianity or this idea that um, the one who bleeds the most is the most faithful, right? We shouldn't be going looking for martyrdom or anything like that. But we shouldn't look at martyrdom or suffering in any sense as antithetical to the gospel. Because if Jesus was crucified, if Jesus was despised by this world, we shouldn't be surprised or frustrated when somebody at work calls us a name. You know, that's normally the kind of suffering that we are accustomed to in the West, where religion is still a free enterprise. Uh, our brothers and sisters abroad in places where Christianity is uh, treated with great hostility is even. Um, a matter of life and death for many people. There are many people who've lost their lives and continue to do so today because they're Christians and not Muslims or Christians and not atheists. And that should always be remembered that while this might not resonate with us in the ultimate sense of dying for the cause of Christ, as it did for Christ himself, as it certainly did for Peter who writes this book, we shouldn't dismiss it and say he doesn't understand how things are now because the way things are now is subjective to where you live. So this reality is really that we are to submit to authority and model Christ, because if you model Christ and don't qualify your suffering by a certain nation or a certain culture that you're in, if you model it by the example of Christ, you will never get to a point and say, it's too severe, I'm out. I'm cashing in. I'm done. Because you can't stop at anything short of death itself if Jesus is the example. Now, I think that's a very unique way of understanding the gospel message. You know, in some sense, we could correlate this to the analogy Paul makes. Paul says that he's the chief of sinners, and the reason he's the chief of sinners is so that God can demonstrate that there's nobody who could look at the Christian message and say, I'm too far gone to ever be saved. Because Paul says, well, I'm the chief of sinners. If I'm saved, you can't look at your life and say, I'm disqualified because I'm too far outside of the grace of God. The same way in this 
template of suffering and servanthood that we see here. Peter says that Jesus is the example, so we can never look at our lives and say, I've served enough because our standard is Jesus. Neither can we say, I've suffered enough because our standard is Jesus. Unless you've surpassed Jesus in servanthood or suffering, you can never bow out and say, this is more than I bargained for. This is too much because the standard is Christ himself. That is to say, the standard is perfection. And God calls us to that. We can't hit the mark of perfection, but we are called to follow, to live in light of what will be true of us one day as sinless, fully redeemed humanity. And this is a good place to stop because we're at the end of the chapter. We have chapters 3, 4, and 5 left, and these are really new um, dynamics of the way that this idea of servanthood and suffering is played out. The dynamic of servanthood and suffering is really the template that Peter follows for the rest of his letter. And again, I just hope that you see the way that he's building each passage here upon the previous one. You might think that I'm the one doing that, but I'm simply just commenting on what Peter wrote. So he's really the one that's building each and every aspect of what he has said. And I really love the way that this letter flows. I can't say enough about it. It's one of my favorite books in the New Testament. And I hope you're enjoying it so far. So next week on Teaching Thursdays, we'll pick things up at the beginning of chapter 3. Thanks so much for listening. Please reach out to me. Give me some feedback. Tell me what you like, what you don't like about this. I hope that you're really growing in your understanding of this letter, and I hope that you are returning to it uh, quite often in your studies and your reading. Uh, You can write to me, kevin at betterbiblereading.com. Always love hearing from people, so let me know what you think. Have a great rest of your day, and thanks for listening.